if you're gonna create value in shipping, you know, it's it's an asset play. So if you buy the assets at a high price, it's a lot more difficult to create value if than if you buy ships when they are cheap. It's really that simple. Uh, but it seems like I think also in shipping you have a lot of other factors. You have the factors that uh, some people are just chasing longer term contracts. They put on a lot of leverage and uh, they hope uh, that they will get the good residual value at the end. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back, everyone. Very happy I stand for that presentation. Last year, you gave us the blueprint regarding how to view at the undervalued stock. Is this the year when, where you tell us how to get out of a stock, not losing any money? Or how would you sum up the situation today compared to last year which we spoke? Yeah, no, I, when we talked last year, I think our stock were trading at, I don't know, 70, 80 corners, some, some, somewhere around that. And of course, it uh, yeah, was a bit frustrated because every time you meet investors, they are, oh, what's happening with the stock? Stock is trading poorly, you're trading well below NAV, all that stuff. Um, but okay, this year has been pretty good. Uh, we are getting it back to more normal valuation. Uh, of course, the, what you have to take into account is that don't let the stock price drive the strategy. If you're getting the stock price to drive the strategy, you are going to do a lot of stupid mistakes. Uh, the stock price is like this uh, annoying, crazy girlfriend that you know, wants to get back with you the one day and the next day she wants to kill you. So. Um, if you are taking her advice, then you're going to do stupid mistakes. So what we have been trying to do is to keep calm. Uh, yeah, keep calm and carry on, actually. So, uh, so we've been, uh, we haven't seen uh, good enough value to lock in ships for longer-term charters. Of course, that's been a strategy for us for some time. And I think some people thought maybe that was just talk because we didn't really lock in ship on longer-term contracts. But uh, we uh, we waited uh, because, uh, as I shown in in the last presentation, uh, the the long term TC rates were not really attractive. Uh, so uh, for quite some time now, we've been trading uh, in the spot market for for most of our ships. Actually, prior to us doing this big deal with Chenier in in April, uh, we had only locked in one ship on uh, a contract longer than one year. Uh, that was Flex Optimist, which is on a five-year charter, but that's, that charter is linked to the spot market. So uh, in that sense, all our ships were exposed to the spot market or the short-term TC market until April. And then when we started to see uh, the market coming back, uh, we took some money off the table, locked in four, possibly five ships on uh, three to three and a half year, uh, or actually we ended up 3.8 years charters. And then we did uh, one ship in May, uh, two ships in May on longer term contracts, one for three years, one for five. And we just recently announced uh, 
two new ships on uh, on uh, three plus two plus two structures where we do think that these will end up trading on these contracts for seven years. So, so uh, that has really transformed the, sh the company in terms of the risk profile. We have gone from having more or less 100% spot exposure, where we today have 30% spot exposure, uh, and where actually the majority of our spot exposure are three ships on index. So that gives you uh, less risk than on a spot. If you are in the spot, it's fantastic when it's good, but it can be pretty terrible when the market is bad. And the market was actually pretty bad back in March. So the March, April, the market was pretty, pretty soft. Uh, JKM, the gas price in Asia, was down to close to five and a half dollars. It's it's closer to 40 today. So, uh, um, so what we have done then is to take down the risk profile. Uh, and of course, that gives us a lot of more earnings visibility. And at the same time, rates has come to a level where we're actually locking in pretty good returns. And, and of course, that has had a lot of impact on the perceived risk of the company. And then also risk is related to, 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 to valuation. So valuation have come back. Of course, last month or so, we have had uh, a bit uh, risk off in the global equity markets with this Omicron uh, mutant virus. It's, uh, it's creating a bit uh, risk off in the market. Most shipping stocks are down quite a lot during the last month or so, including ourselves. But in general, you know, that's, that's just the stock market uh, we, we have in the last couple of, we had the Delta variant and the Alpha variant. We've seen that these shocks in the equity market has become less because people are getting more used to new new variants of the coronavirus. So, in general, I think uh, I don't think it's a good time to exit for that. You know, we just paid out our dividend this uh, week, so uh, 75 cents. It gives a, a yield of close to 15 percent on your investment, and and with the backlog we have, that's a should be a fairly stable yield. And at the same time, we've seen uh, long-term interest rates actually going down. So if you are buying a 10-year treasury bond from the US government today, you get about 1.5%. If you invest in our stock, you get 10 times that return in, in dividends. So, so I think uh, in general, I'm, I'm fairly positive to everything in the energy space. I'm positive to uh, kind of the oil price. The, I, I, I can't really understand why the 2023 oil contracts are at like $65. It seems seems very low. I think shipping stocks have also taken a big uh, uh, fall recently, and I, I do see a lot of value in those. Remember that the stock market is up a lot this year, but if you look at the US stock market, it's mostly driven by these popular big cap fund stocks, tech stocks, which has been very resilient. Uh, in this downturn, but there's a lot of value hidden. Uh, and the valuation gap between S&P 500 and the S&P 600, which is the 600 smallest shares, that's been just growing and growing every month. How do you separate uh, peak cycles from mega trends that you think will drive the market for a long time? And in that same argument, can you also tell us a bit about the boom we are seeing in people ordering LNG chips going forward as well. Yeah. Okay. If we just go to the specific, then I, I we do see this year will be the year with the most LNG orders 
on record probably. Uh, it's driven by a trend that we have been talking about for at least three, four years now. And, and that's the fact that a lot of the ships in the market are becoming obsolete. And this is uh, particularly the case with uh, steamships. And we were talking about this a long time before we were talking about EEXI rules coming into force in, in 2023. It's more driven by economics and, and the fact that these ships are very inefficient. And now they are being implemented uh, environmental rules, which will certainly make these ships uh, unattractive in the market. And, and th that means that these ships will be, have to be replaced by new ships. <laughs> uh, and of course, we are also in a growing market where we do see a, a lot of new projects uh, coming and that will require more ships. And then I think the third factor is that more or less all the growth in the space is in Asia. So Europe is... Uh, uh, will not be growing very quickly. So, so the, the, the growth will come from Asia and that usually means longer sailing distances. But that said, I think there are people are getting a bit ahead of themselves. We do think that there are a lot of, of orders we have not been ordering because I think we have a bit different philosophy in the sense that we don't want to order ships when everybody else is ordering ships. Prices now for LNG new buildings are approaching $220 million. When we order our ships in 1718, similar ships uh, we, we, we bought for $180, $185 million. So it's a big gap between where prices are today and where they were back in 1718 when nobody really wanted to, to order ships. So so I don't if if you're gonna make a if you're gonna create value in shipping, you know it's it's an asset play. So if you buy that assets at a high price, it's a lot more difficult to create value if, than if you buy ships when they are cheap. It's really that simple. Uh, but it seems like, I think also in shipping, you have a lot of other factors. You have the factors that uh, some people are just chasing longer term contracts. They put on a lot of leverage and uh, they hope uh, that they will get the good residual value at the end. Uh, it's also the fact that it's a lot of other people's money. So uh, people ordering ships, but they are not really the ones that putting money into these uh, projects. There are other people's money and they are collecting a fee for ordering the ships and, and chartering out the ships. And then somebody else takes the risk and those people ordering the ships, they, they get, uh, get uh, some fees regardless. So that's a, a bit of a problem with the industry in general, I would say. But for us, we have been focus on our own ships because as I mentioned and, and until recently we have had basically 13 ships exposed to the spot market so why why would you then add on a lot of new ships we are rather focused on our own ships locking in good returns on those ships and uh, and uh, and we are more focused on creating a good return for our shareholders than just building an empire with a lot of, of ships Makes sense. Since this is a Christmas show, we decided to only do simple questions today. So the first question will be, should a country or more specifically Norway subsidize the electricity bill for people? Yeah, well, of course, if you are an economist, you know, price is the most powerful signal you have in the economy. So if prices go up, this is in because there's not enough supply. So in order to get this kind of supply demand to equate, uh, you have to get prices up so people are saving 
But of course, if you get a subsidy, you are distorting that uh, price signal. So in general, uh, I would say no. Um, you could also argue the fact that this in, in over there's a cap, you can uh, spend 5,000 kilowatt hours a, a, a month. So you're really rewarding the people who live in, in big houses. People who are living in small apartments. They don't spend 5,000 kilowatt hours a month. So uh, I, I, I would rather favor a, a general flat subsidy where every household gets a, a check. Uh, almost like the stimulus check in, in the US rather than than just going so directly into energy consumption and distorting it. I mean, I mean, I find it fascinating because maybe it's a very unpopular argument to say, but it isn't like you can't fix your electricity at a very low cost in Norway. So maybe that should be talked about more. No, no, but that's the, that's the, the problem. It's, this is not the economics, it's politics. And uh, you can also fix your house loan uh, at very cheap levels these days. Nobody does it. So, but once if uh, I'm sure if interest rates goes up, we will have the same argument that the people with a, a floating loan they will argue that the government have to subsidize their interest payments. So, uh, so of course the politicians will always favor the majority. So they they don't want the majority to be unhappy. So then that's why we have these kind of schemes. For people wanting to learn more about the energy market and how it works, which nation, which company, and which people should people try to understand how they think and how will they affect the global uh, energy market? Because of course you maybe have to separate the global um, the global world from the European world, obviously. But what are the whose are the key stakeholders? Either companies, organizations, politicians. I think, of course, if, if you look at a country, of course, I would say it's America because America is the biggest gas producer in the world or also the biggest gas consumer. They are neck on neck with Saudi and Russia on the biggest oil producer as well. They are the biggest oil consumer. Uh, so, of course, what's happening in the U.S. It's, it has a lot of impact. And also, I think, you know, as I mentioned previously, is that uh, in, the, in the other segment is that U.S. will probably be the biggest LNG exporter already in 2022. But, of course, the growth is not coming from U.S. So I think that if you, if you look at who will have the biggest impact on prices, uh, probably be China, of course, because that's where you have the growth. You have the growth in the oil consumption, the gas consumption, and of course, it's the you know fastest growing big economy in the world. So, so of course, what happened in in China? Of course, usually back in the days we had this uh, saying that if if America sneezes, the rest of the world get the cold. Today, it's uh, a bit, uh, especially if you are in energy and commodities, it's more like if China sneezes, then the whole energy and commodity complex get a cold. So, so you know, I would say Chimerica then, you know, US, China, then, you know, are, are the most important uh, companies. It's, yeah, it's, it's a difficult question. Of course, the biggest energy company in the world is Saudi Aramco. So, of course, <laughs> what's going on in Saudi in terms of the political situation, economic situation, stability in the region has a lot of impact on the world economy. Uh, and then, of course, 
uh, Exxon Mobil is still a big company, even though this year we saw, uh, or I, I think maybe the, it was last year, we saw this uh, rather uh, less known, uh, uh, more renewable focused utility, Next Era becoming having a bigger market cap than Exxon, and that was quite a, a big surprise. Exxon used to be the biggest publicly listed company in the world. Uh, but yeah, so company, I would say it's a bit difficult. You also have the energy transition where I do think that the innovation with in relation to, to new energy concepts will probably not derive in Exxon Mobile. They will probably derive somewhere else. Um, so that, that you know, uh, I, I would rather be betting on, on new horses than old horses, probably. Makes sense. Just to just to add on uh, one of the argument or one of the points about China and US, can you also just add on that uh, scenario where China is concerned about their energy and they are building up the military and then you have the US as well and then you have the countries they're trying to take control over? How will this play out in an energy market, right? So what's the scenarios people can imagine? It's if China is basically pursuing the path that the U.S. has been pursuing, making sure that they have an energy security, and that's why you see the Chinese building out also bases in in the Middle East. So, so how this will play out, it's it's difficult to say whether there will be conflict or not. The odds are in favor of conflict if you look at. History lessons. Um, usually, when you have had a, a hegemony and you have had a big uh, challenger that has, in in most cases, ended up with uh, with war. Uh, hopefully, uh, people have taken some lessons from the history books and and are able to to kind of uh, restrain themselves and find a solution where we are not ending up with that because that would certainly be a catastrophe. I agree. And also we can just uh, plug uh, the report that Saxo Bank did with Stan since he was on the podcast recently. So people who are looking for some crazy predictions can just read that report. Um, next question. Uh, let's talk about lazy management. Why did you bring that up in New York? Give us the context and give us the uh, arguments. Yeah, it's uh, you pay a lot of attention now. So uh, I, I had a discussion where of course, there are some companies who want to be debt-free. Of course, if you are an insider, which is management, it's nice to have a debt-free company because then you can't really go bankrupt uh, and you can't really have a lot of financial difficulties unless you are just burning all the cash on, uh, on, uh, on spending. So, uh, you know, in general, in, in shipping, you know, you have OPEX, you know, if you look at our kind of costs, we have a cash break even of around 45,000. So 15,000 is OPEX and management, and then it's about 13,000 in interest and $17,000 in uh, installments on our debt. So that's 45. So, so <laughs> two thirds of our cost is capital cost. If our company were debt free, our cash break even would be 15,000. So of course, it's hard to be able to trade your ships so poorly that we would end up in a financial distress then. Uh, but of course, if you don't have any debt, then you know you have more cash flow to spend. 
because if you generating the all the same and and my argument was I, I don't really see why a public listed shipping company should be debt free because uh, usually debt can especially these days debt debt is very cheap and it also creates an incentive problem if the companies are generating a lot of cash and if you're not really a disciplined management what typically happens then is that management is just buying up a lot of new ships companies get buying bigger uh, office lo uh, locations giving themselves bigger salaries because they have a lot of cash flow to divert if you have leverage you, <laughs> you have a financial obligation to pay all the banks and installments uh, so there's less cash to divert and and i, I I was referring then to our article by uh, Jensen and Meckling uh, from 1976, which is the capital structure and agency problems. And, and this really is related to the agency problems because while shareholders own a company, it's run by managers and they don't really have the same incentives. Shareholders, they want the highest possible returns. Uh, management, they usually want the highest possible return for them self not possible not necessarily shareholders unless they are a shareholder and of course an easy 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 day where they don't have a lot of problems and sleepless night nights so of course by putting a lot of debt in a company you are then you know forcing the management to really be on top of things and 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 kind of uh, uh, acting in the best interest of shareholders to make sure that the company is running as efficiently as, as possible to make sure that uh, they are not ending up in financial distress because usually, not always, but usually management gets sacked when you get into some bankruptcy. There are some crazy histories from the US where actually management get a bonus if they get into chapter 11 and they call them chapter 11 stay on bonuses and retention, which is, you know. yeah. But so that's my argument is that and then, of course, you could stretch this too far. If, if you are stretching, if you're really overleveraging the company, you might end up having so much financial kind of distress costs that the management is so preoccupied by talking to banks, dealing with short-term liquidity issues, that this is actually not in the favor of the shareholders. So you need to find this balance where you add, you know, if you have zero debt, if you're adding some debt, okay, you will divert some of the cash flow to banks uh, and you can repay some of the equity. And, and at one equilibrium level, it doesn't make sense to add more debt because the cost of doing this in terms of management diversion of, of time uh, doesn't really add up to the uh, benefit of adding that debt. So having no debt, you know, sure, you can do that if you own your company yourself. And you don't have any other shareholders and you are 100 percent owner of that's fine but if you are a management in a public listed company where you are your equity stake is is minor this doesn't make sense for the shareholders i think for the shareholders they should force that management to put on a um, debt and as we have done recently we have added that now on a ship uh, where we did a refinancing and 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 debt is very cheap these days we are talking Taking replacing a, a bank loan, adding a, a, a lease, we're paying four percent all in on this 
loan for 10 years where we don't have any financial covenants. And financial covenants is usually what creates a lot of financial distress. So if you don't have those covenants, uh, the cost of this kind of financial distress is less. So I have a strong view on this. Uh, when I went to business school, we had the saying, equity is a pillow. You know, it's soft. Uh, debt is a dagger. It's pretty hard. So if you don't perform, uh, there will be consequences. And that also motivates and incentivizes the, the, the management to, to really focus on the important stuff and grow earnings for shareholders. Makes sense. Just some uh, technical questions. I don't think they require a long answer, but I'm just going to read them up. Many investors like predictability of dividends, which is difficult for cyclical shipping stocks to achieve. Uh, do you foresee the day when Flex might issue a series of preferred shares for such long-term investors? Yeah, I agree. Of course, the dividends must reflect the cash flow. Of course, there's been a lot of alchemists in the shipping industry. They've been usually they've been making MLPs and they've been promising a dividend level, uh, and uh, kind of their business switch risk hasn't really been able to deliver those kind of returns. For us, we have been always honest about saying, you know, the dividend is the residual cash flow we get. Uh, and we've been ramping up the dividend this year from 30 cent to 40 cent and now to 75 cent. And it really reflects stronger earnings. It reflects the fact that we have had a lot of ships under construction. And in May, we, we had our last ships. So that means that our, our earnings potential now is much bigger than a year ago because now all our ships are on the water generating income. And we also lock them in on longer term contracts, which means that we're locking in a kind of fixed return uh, and that means that we are, can also be uh, more uh, predictable on the dividends so um, in terms of preferred shares I'm usually not that happy about having a lot of complex balance sheet you know I like the fact we have bank debt or, or, or leases and equity and a lot of people try to have a lot of layers here so then you have maybe a bond, you have a hybrid bond and preferred share. And it just gets very complicated. It's, you know, it's it kind of like people trying to be alchemists. Uh, if you're promising some people a preferred dividend, that means that the existing shareholders, their dividend is getting at a higher risk. So you can't promise somebody something without giving taking from somebody else. So I, I wouldn't do it unless there were some investors who had such a strong preference for these dividends that they were willing to accept such a low dividend that it would make sense for the existing shareholders. So if if that happens, it, it could happen that we do it. But in general, probably not. Just the last one on a bit on the technical side. Uh, last year, there were um, containers and LNG carrier traffic that led to delays in the Panama uh, Canal. Uh, this isn't um, going on this year, but still the traffic is quite big. Is there any reason for that, the congestion piece? Uh, uh, congestion were high about a month ago. It's been coming down the last month or so. Uh, you know, if you look back a month, uh, congestion for LNG were all the way up to 18 days. Uh, 
Remember, when we're talking about congestion, we are not talking about ships that are arriving in Panama without a pre-reserved slot. So if you have a pre-reserved slot, you come to Panama and you go to... But, you know, there's not a lot... You know, there's not enough slots to go around. So some people are coming there and it's, it's almost become like a spot market for transit. And actually you have what we call today flash auctions. So we have to bid for the right to go through the, uh, the Panama Canal, which is like becoming a toll road. Uh, and it's of course hard if you are a LNG ship or a VLGC ship or a bulker to compete with the willingness to pay with a container ship. If you have a huge container ship, which has a lot of containers uh, where the cargo value is immensely high, they would usually be willing to pay a higher tolling fee than a uh, commodity shipping. Uh, so, uh, so I, you know, why it's gone down? Of course, it has something to do with also the trade pattern. We've seen that because of this unpredictability, how long time will it take to get to Panama? Some people are just forget about it. I'm not going down there, waiting for 12 days, and I end up in a flash auction, and I have to pay half a million dollars to get through. So instead, they are diverting their ships to Cape of Good Hope, maybe even Suez to Asia, and that has put less pressure on Panama Canal, and that's why congestion now is like five, six days rather than 15, 16 days. Uh, but of course, usually when you see congestion going down in Panama, you will see some people, okay, maybe I take my chances now because the queue is less. So the, it, it can certainly pop up again if people are seeing that the queue is, 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 uh, is, uh, is a less of a problem. Makes sense. Uh, some new types of question. Um, you serve uh, at the board of your sister company, Avance Gas. Can you tell us a bit about that experience and that? Does that experience add value to the job you have at Flex Energy? Yeah, um, I think in terms of the, there are some similar drivers for the LNG and LPG market. And that's the fact that the energy revolution in in, uh, in US in relation to shale gas, shale oil. So uh, US were planning to become a big LNG importer. Uh, and then they figure out this shale gas and shale oil. And suddenly now next year, they're probably the biggest LNG exporter in the world. So a lot of uh, this LNG, LPG growth comes from the shale oil. And when you're producing shale oil, you have what we call associated gas. Usually this has been a problem. You want to re-inject it into the reservoir or just flare it. Uh, but you know the volume of this associated gas is so huge that we America has been building both LPG factories uh, and uh, LNG export terminals. And so what happens with the shale uh, production in US is a big driver for both the LNG market, LNG export market and the LPG markets. Uh, so I would say there are some synergies in relation to understanding because we are both looking at the same data point, which is US shale production, uh, some kind of in relation to FIDs of new terminals. And we're also dealing with the same problem. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's a problem, sometimes it's an opportunity, which is Panama congestion, because both these ships are going to the Panama Canal and, and what happened in Panama has a lot of impact on uh, ton mileage. 
same driver is where is the demand growth? It's Asia. Both LNG, LPG, demand growth is, is driven by Asia. We do see uh, both China and India, same drivers and is as in LNG. They are uh, keen on, on this LPG and LNG cargo. So, so yeah, I do think it uh, has a benefit because uh, what happens in the LPG space also impacts the LNG space and, and vice versa. And, and the drivers are really, really much the same. What's your definition on a great board member versus a CEO? Same type of people or different qualities used at different types, times? I'm sorry. I think people who have had operational experience and commercial experience and have taken a lot of decisions uh, are usually the best uh, board members because you have to take decisions under uncertainty uh, you have to take decision under stress um, maybe just uh, you know financial pressure you know maybe your cash balance is going down and you have to do something so people have made a lot of these decisions they they understand it and they understand this is not the perfect approach sometimes you do mistakes sometimes you make the, the right decision but it turns out wrong because something happens so uh, usually it's an uh, advantage having people who have taken a lot of decisions because they have learned over a long time that, you know, it's not always the outcome that um, makes sense. So what's important is kind of what you did at that time and what kind of evaluation you did. Uh, and, and then you made the decision, rightly or wrongly, uh, but uh, you had a process behind it and, uh, and uh, you... You, you usually don't want people saying, you know, going back hindsight 2020 and question all the decision that is made. Uh, that's usually somebody who hasn't made a lot of decision. They usually do that. A lot of people who have made a lot of decision, they understand this is <laughs> an imperfect uh, science. Couldn't agree more. It reminds me of a saying in sports that I really love. It's that uh, pressure is privilege. So if you have a mindset that whenever you have pressure, it's a privilege, you, that's a good start to start making decisions. I thought maybe the next question, just when we are talking about um, qualities for people, can't you also just highlight the new dream job you have now announced for Flex LNG? Tell us a bit about why you need to hire one more person and who should that person be? Yeah, no, we are. It's uh, <clears throat> good to get a, a, a ad for my uh, application here in Bin. You know, I wasn't expecting that, so uh, thank you. <laughs> now, so we are looking for a vice president. We have been making this. You know, it's a very broad position and reflect the fact that we are immensely lean. So uh, we have a very lean team, uh, very lean top management, and we need somebody to be able to work on all the different segments. We don't have a big finance department with a lot of people. Or, you know, we, so in this job, you would be working commercial, making commercial analysis, making commercial reports. You have to work on financing. If we're closing our, our, our financing, you have to be able to join that. When we're doing our quarterly reports, you have to uh, do some re research and, and analysis of our uh, accounts. Uh, when we're doing a budget process, you should probably be making the budget. 
uh, when we are doing presentations, you should be able to at least help me with making some of the slides and making some of the data analysis because making the slides actually take quite a lot of time. You know, you can you can do it very simply if you want. You can just cut and paste from other people's work, but then usually uh, I find it good to do a lot of data analysis to to figure out what are what's happening in the market there and see if we can come up with something that uh, makes sense and which is a bit different. So. So we can uh, show some people something new. Uh, uh, and then, of course, we have to have some people who can work on our web page, all this stuff. Um, so uh, so really a, a, a job where you can learn about running a shipping company from the commercial, accounting, finance, but also the technical and doing uh, having meeting with our technical department about budgets, costs, you know, we always have at times, you know, sometimes we want to do some upgrades on ships and then we have to do some analysis. Does this make sense to spend one million dollar on this or half a million dollar on that? And that's always good to have some people doing some calculation and just not doing it because it's nice to have that new gadget. Makes sense. Can we also just spend two minutes on diversity? Just given the fact that if you visit shipping homepages and you look at teams and it's not like you're blown away. So what's the, uh, what's the problem? Is it too many people in the pipeline or is it just that too many factors playing at the same time, the industry, the people, the age, etc. Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I do see that of course it's been traditionally, uh, a very, uh, man dominated, uh, occupation. Uh, I think that is changing. We do see that, especially in the law, law business, most of the people getting into the law studies and, uh, and, and, uh, and law firms today are female. And we do, do see this in, in, in shipping law as well. So I think uh, we do see it in accounting and audits. Uh, we see, do have definitely also seeing it in the banking. So shipping bank, bank ship, you know, shipping banks, to, uh, so it, it's gradually getting better in shipping companies. Also, it's it's also getting better, but it's it's taking a bit longer time than probably you should be aiming for. So, of course, for us, we would certainly like to to get a more diversity in our company as well. Over the last years, we have tried to give our community the best possible content on business, investing, and entrepreneurship. If you have enjoyed this free content over time and find it valuable, it would be amazing if you want to support us by making a small donation in our Patreon. Just click the link in the description to have a look.